Hello and welcome to our latest McTavish podcast. I'm Stephen Allen, McTavish's Marketing Director, and today I'm joined by Malcolm Cutts-Watson, founder of Cutts-Watson Consulting and an inaugural member of the Captive Hall of Fame, and David Herzl, Law Commissioner and currently Chair of McTavish's Dispute Resolution Practice. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, delighted to be here and great to see David again. <laughs> Good to see you too, Malcolm. Malcolm, if I could come to you first, one of the things that we hear quite a lot about in the insurance media is that more and more firms are exploring either setting up captives or expanding the use of ones they already have in place. Is that being borne out in reality or is it just a reflection of dissatisfaction with a hard market? Well, that's a very valid question because traditionally uh, interest in captives rises when the market's tough. Um, but uh, Captive Review have just released their year-end 2020 statistics and it proves uh, quite interesting reading. Some things you would expect, but also some things maybe that you wouldn't expect. Um, first of all, overall, the, the number of captives has gone down year on year, which is a surprise. There's 93 less captives at the end of 2020. So there are now just over 6,300 captives, um, which seems counterintuitive given given the tough market is typically when people form captives. If you actually dig into those numbers, you find there are actually 382 new formations. So that's a 6% growth, which is towards the top end of what we've seen over the last few years. So there is evidence there that the captive formation is responding to the tough market. What's interesting is at the same time, there were 474 liquidations. And that came as a surprise to me. Um, I suspect this is because captives are receiving increased scrutiny by their owners, given the tough market. And they may have decided that some of those captives aren't fulfilling their, their purpose or they've, they've finished their purpose. Or it may be there are surplus captives there, given mergers and acquisitions activity and excess captives may no longer be necessary. So I would expect to see the trend of increasing captives in 2021 going forward. The other interesting statistic relates to cells. Now, these are the, the renter captive facilities, um, which are relatively new. And there are now over 3000 of these cells in existence. To me, that suggests that there are a number of maybe middle tier or smaller companies who previously would have thought a captive was beyond their reach are now using cells to access captive technology. And I think we will continue to see a very steady growth in those numbers going forward. So overall, um, some surprises in 2020. What I'm hearing at the moment on 2021 is it's it's much more as, as predicted, very steady growth in captives and cells. That's really interesting. Do you see any headwinds or barriers that might slow that growth down at all? Um, well, the, the, the thing that interests me is, is the capital management behind the captives. Um, captives tend to be very conservative underwriting vehicles. And if we take the numbers which Marsh produce annually on their portfolio, and then you extrapolate that for the total captive universe, you end up with um, $150 billion of premium being written annually and $350 billion of capital and surplus. So that's an extremely conservative underwriting. Um, premiums about 30% or 40% of capital and surplus. Um, 
if 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 you extrapolate, you know, if the if if the captives wrote on a fully funded basis, so they wrote risk that they had sufficient cash to cover, they could write half a trillion dollars of of risk. If they adopted some leverage like most insurance companies do through spread of risk, that number becomes one trillion dollars. That's a huge amount of capacity. And, and and people have always said that captives don't create capacity. But actually, in this case, I think there is an argument that they are doing that. That's that's talking about leveraging a captive. On the other hand, if you don't want to be as aggressive with your underwriting, it suggests to me there's an awful lot of capital trapped in captives that could be released. And one of the things we're finding when we're being asked to look at the uh, effectiveness of captives is the, the large amount of trapped capital that's there. A recent exercise we did, we found that there was up to $25 uh, million of capital that could be released back to the parent that just wasn't being used. And that, to me, uh, is 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 the issue probably that's overlooked at the moment, is the real uh, a closer look at the capital efficiency of the captives. So there's clearly quite a lot of headroom there should, should people seek to use it. We all know that the regulatory landscape is always shifting. David, you were involved in the Insurance Act 2015 when you were a law commissioner. Uh, I know that this is a very big question, but could you tell us a little about how the Act impacts captive owners? Yes, I mean, I think uh, the first point to make really is it would only impact captive owners if English law applied to the insurance contracts they were, they were writing, and very often it does. So there is that um, starting point. Um, in terms of risk for captive owners, I think there's probably two. The first and most obvious relates to claims. And that will be a situation probably not where you've got a, a closed loop with a captive and a parent, um, perhaps not there. But if you bring in third party involvement, possibly a front and more likely a reinsurer for the captive, then you would be bringing in in the, in the whole contractual chain the provisions of the Insurance Act. And in distinction with the previous law, the Insurance Act sets out a little bit more clearly what the obligations on the policyholder are and the obligations on the insurer are. And in, in perhaps most significantly, it sets out a degree of description of the process should be followed when that cover is placed. If those processes have not been followed, then it will be open to particularly, I think, a reinsurer to challenge whether or not the presentation of the risk had been fair. At the very least, that would mean delays in getting the claim paid. At the very worst, that would mean either a reduced payment of the claim or, in fact, no payment at all. So not only do you have to follow the principles of the Act, but you also do have to follow the processes that it contains and record those processes so that you've got the evidence to support the claim when you make it. The second issue, I think, is a little bit more um, speculative, but nonetheless, it does have some significance. It is sometimes a situation that a tax authority will challenge whether or not a captive is a genuine insurance vehicle or whether it is some means of uh, trying to avoid paying tax. And that we know it happens and McTavish have been involved in uh, a claim of that sort. The worry is because the Act sets out the processes that have to be followed, it will be easier for a tax authority to look at what actually happened and to see whether or not those processes were followed. If they weren't, then it makes their challenge to the tax status of that captive something which would be more strongly supported. So those, I think, are the two worries. First, the claims, that's probably the most um, immediate concern. And the second would be whether or not you followed the processes and could 
support um, any resistance to a challenge on the Act. Um, I think you raised two really good points there, David. Um, looking at the captive industry, I, I've been surprised really at the, the low level of interest or response to the Insurance Act. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you know, sometimes people forget the roles and responsibilities that each party has. And as you say, a captive can either be accepting risk either on a direct basis or as a reinsurer and in turn can be purchasing reinsurance. And I'm not sure necessarily that the managers and the captive board always remember exactly what their responsibilities are in each of those uh, scenarios. Um, and your point about the processes, um, I think, is spot on, because I, I don't think uh, or I haven't seen a large number of captives amend their processes for accepting risk or transferring risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, taking into consideration the Insurance Act. So I think you're right, there, there, there's potentially a, a legal and regulatory exposure there, which which I'm not sure everyone has recognised in the captive community. No, and my concern would be that that recognition would come when a big problem arises, and it's probably more yeah. off before <laughs> and, and then, and yet, but then you're going to be backfilling exactly. to try and get to where you should be, you know, <laughs> retrospectively. Yes, yes. So clearly a, a lot of stuff for captive owners to get their head around there. Um, Malcolm, we all know that COVID-19 has impacted pretty much every aspect of our lives. Um, has it changed anything in the captives industry? Um, I think there's three things I would I would pick up on. Um, the first really is the, the certainty of coverage, certainty of payment. And I know this is something that McTavish has done a lot of research on in terms of uh, contentious claims and, and how the marketplace reacts to that. Um, and clearly, you know, if a captive is is operating properly, you should have, I think, more certainty of, of coverage and, and claims payment. Um, the second thing really is is just filling in the gaps. You know, the, the 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 analogy is the Swiss cheese, where the coverage has lots of holes in it. So you use the captive really just to pick up those those small uh, gaps. And we're seeing that being used. Um, the third thing really is on a governance point of view. Uh, and again, I don't think people have necessarily picked up on this. Captives typically have a, a life cycle of about uh, three to five years. And what by that, I mean, you set, you know, you set out your vision for what you want the captives to do. The board puts a strategy in place and then they monitor the management as they deliver on that, that strategy. And you reach the particular targets you've set. And then you recalibrate and go through that exercise again. Now, typically, that's a three to five year process. What we're seeing now with COVID-19 is things moving around so much. That time frame is shortened and it can be as short as a year. So you're, you're actually resetting your vision, resetting your strategy on that, that very uh, frequent basis. And, and I'm not sure necessarily that the captive stakeholders have picked up on the need to be doing that type of exercise on a more regular basis. Um, very hard to, to 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 come out with a five-year business plan and and roadmap these days. I think it needs to be shorter than that, so you can adapt much more quickly to the the changing environment. Other than the things we've discussed, and I guess this is a question to both of you, really, but perhaps David, if you wouldn't mind going first, mm. do you have any predictions about future trends that our listeners should be thinking about in the year ahead? I think what the, I mean, to stick on the COVID theme for a moment, I think what that has done is make people far more aware of systemic risk. 
and uh, you know there's a huge opportunity there maybe for captives to look at something like that and for the whole um, insurance industry to consider how it's going to deal with that challenge but buyers are much more concerned now about pandemics obviously if they can buy cover for that of course another question but it's not just this sort of issue it, 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 systemic risk people have realized that things are very very interconnected and what happens in one part of the world or one part of even the country has an impact um, on another and so there's a kind of joined up thinking i think that the industry is going to have to to apply and isn't necessarily at the moment particularly well set up to do or to fund actually in some cases and if i could pick up on or sort of continue that that theme david um it you know the the insurance advisors are saying that insurance buyers should plan well ahead and start their renewal discussions uh, mm -hmm. earlier than normal um i think looking at it from a risk financing point of view i think you know that whole conversation needs to start even earlier mm -hmm. um just because of the time it takes to conduct your analysis, work out the most efficient frontier for your retention and transfer of risk. And then if you are going to set up a formalized uh, risk financing vehicle, such as a captive, then you need to give yourself enough time to be able to put that in place, have the capital allocated to it and, and be ready to, to, to rock and roll. I think what I've seen is that people are asking us to come in and assess the viability of a captive. But basically, by the time we've done the work, we're right into renewal and there's not enough time really to set the vehicle in place so yes. you're almost having to wait another 12 months or ask the market for an extension which isn't always possible um the only alleviating factor to that is is that a number of domiciles now have a pre-authorization process so that if you're setting up one of these cells which we spoke about earlier they are allowing those to be set up in one or two days rather than say six weeks which or two months which would be the normal captive formation time so that they are you know the regulators are trying to support the the insurance buyers by allowing them to set up these vehicles very quickly the irony is you can set the vehicle up very quickly but it could still take you six weeks to set up a bank account to put the money into so uh, you know, the banks have their own challenges as well with these type of vehicles and, and i feel sorry for them because they've got all their their internal due diligence to complete so it, it the message is the takeaway is start early plan early i think as they say the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining isn't it yeah. <laughs> i think you know that is a, i mean we haven't touched on the sort of hard market either but that's perhaps something we ought to mention which is that these swings in the market are difficult for buyers and inevitably when um, you get this kind of hard market coming along very rapidly and very steeply People look at uh, obviously alternatives to, to, to conventional insurance like captives, but they also think about is this product really a valuable one to buy, or should I be doing something else or doing nothing? And it's not really it's not really helpful to have in, in any financial product. You don't want wild price swings, and insurance is a little bit prone to that. Although we have had this soft market for years and years and years. Certainly come to a close now. Um, thank you very much to both David and Malcolm. I'm sure our listeners will have found the conversation as interesting as I have, and there's some great advice in there as well. Please keep an eye on our website and social media channels if you'd like to stay up to date with our latest podcasts and thinking. Thank you very much. Thank you.